I don't know how many of you have moved recently. We just moved recently. And when you move, you meet a lot of people, new people. And when you meet new people, you kind of have the same conversation over and over again. You know, you just feel like you're on repeat, on record. And as you do that, there are these two questions that come up almost every single time. They're the two that you would assume. The first is, where are you from? And so I say, oh, yeah, we moved here from Chicago, and almost everybody has a random Chicago connection. You know, my brother or my aunt lives there, whatever. And then they say, aren't you glad to get out of the city? We say yes, but we're even more excited to get into the sunshine because Chicago's, like, dark for six months, right? Um, so where are you from is the first one. And then what do you do is the second question, uh, as you'd assume. And I say, well, I'm, I'm the new pastor at Grace Church right here in Basalt. And this is where the reactions get sort of fun, you know? Uh, people oftentimes have no idea what to do with a pastor. We're sort of a strange breed. So either they talk a whole lot after that, or they don't talk at all. Um, so I was standing next to this guy at the deli counter down at City Market, and uh, he's a really friendly guy. We strike up a conversation. He asked me these same two questions. And when I told him I was a pastor, he goes, wow, no. And then he stopped himself from the next word that was going to come out of his mouth. <laughs> and instead he goes... Oh, no way. That's really cool, man. Great. Glad you're here. Where are you from, and what do you do? Okay? I don't think it's an accident. These are the two questions that we ask when we get to know each other. Um, on, the, on the one hand, they are surface level, right? You're just kind of gathering data about somebody. But in another way, these are really profound questions. These are asking things about who you are, right? They're wh- where are you from, your past, and why are you here? What do you, what's your mission? What are you doing with your life? There, we all come from somewhere. We have a story, a history, a past, and we're all here for a reason, a job, a dream, a mission, a better life. So even if you have been in this valley your whole life, and even if you don't have a clear idea of what you're doing or why you're here or what's next, this is still true of all of us. We all came here from somewhere, for a reason. And as we turn to our text this morning, John 1, this Christmas Eve morning, we're going to see that the very same thing is actually true of God. The whole Bible is about Jesus from beginning to end. And the central story it tells is about Jesus' arrival, his move to a new town, to a new place. Uh, And just like you and me, the Bible tells us that Jesus came here from somewhere for a reason. In fact, we're going to see this morning that that's exactly the message and even the miracle of Christmas. So I'm going to read the first 18 verses of the Gospel of John. It's the intro to this Gospel. And then we're going to unpack what it says for a few minutes together. Feel free to follow along in your Bible. I think Pew Bible, page 886. Or you can follow along. The words will be on the screen behind me. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but he came to bear witness about the light. The true light which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world. The world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own. His own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God, 
who were born not of blood, nor of the who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me, because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. Jesus, we ask that as we open your word this morning that you would give us eyes to see your truth. You give us hearts to trust and believe and delight in you. And then as we leave today, you give us courage to move out into this world as your children, as your followers, as your, uh, your people in this place. We ask all these things in your name. Amen. So uh, I propose that we get to know Jesus this morning in the same way that we get to know each other when we first meet each other. We're going to ask Jesus the same two questions we always ask. Where are you from and why are you here? And uh, so let's just jump in. Where is Jesus from? Right off the bat, I want us to notice verse 14. The word, which is John's way of referring to Jesus in this intro, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we've seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now that phrase, dwelt among us, it's a word that actually means pitched his tent here, okay? Jesus isn't camping, not that we know of. Um, This is actually a reference to God's people in the Old Testament, the people of Israel. As they wandered in the desert for 40 years after God saved them out of slavery in Egypt, they were basically nomads living in tents for a generation. And so writing with this Old Testament tradition in mind, John is basically saying, Jesus came and set up his tent next to ours. Or as Eugene Peterson put it in his, uh, in his translation of the Bible, Jesus moved into our neighborhood, Okay. And it's this one little phrase, the word became flesh and dwelt among us, that summarizes the earth-shattering, totally reorienting, transformative news of Christmas. The incarnation that God became a human and moved into our neighborhood. Jesus arrived here. And to see how wild that claim, that story, that move really is, We've got to understand where Jesus moved from, okay? So in verse 1, this is what we read. In the beginning was the Word, again, was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. He was in the beginning with God. Where is Jesus from? He's from, uh, what's that? He's from God, because I want to play the earth. He is from God. This guy's got it right. Jesus, John tells us that Jesus is from eternity, Okay, which is not so much a place as a time. Now, before the world was made, before matter existed, before time existed, before there was a before, Jesus was there. Okay, Jesus was the first person, the first fact. And we learn he wasn't there alone. Verse 1 says Jesus was with God and he was God. Now, we're going to jump in deep right away here, okay? Because this is talking about the Trinity. Now, the Christian belief that God is one being, but three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's one of those mind-benders in Christianity. Don't ask me to explain it to you today, because I can't, uh, but it's true, 
all right? One being three persons, which means he's a family himself, which means he has a family relationships and a family dynamic from eternity past. Now, we can't wrap our minds around this entirely, but maybe we can imagine how this conversation would go if we met Jesus today. So, Jesus just moved into the neighborhood, and you run into him at the deli counter at City Market, okay? How does this conversation go? You ask him the same two questions, right? So, hey, where are you from? He says, well, I'm from before time. Sure you are, buddy. And tell me a little bit about that. What's it like there? Well, if you really must know, I live in perfect relationship with my family. We're one being, but separate persons. We've been mutually adoring each other for eternity. We've been completely valued and fulfilled. We've been sort of obsessed with one another's glory. You know, other-centered, deflecting love um, in awe of one another from all time. Okay. Well, I'm from Chicago, you know? Let, Let me just say this up front. Christianity is weird, okay? Like the claims that we're making here, they're a bit outrageous. Um, The claims that John is making, that Jesus is from eternity past and has been with uh, his family in loving relationships that whole time, um, it's outrageous. But if it's true, that's what we need to understand about Christmas, if that's true, this is also the most lovely and beautiful truth that you and I have ever heard, right? This is actually the thing that we all hope is true, whether we know it or not. That unity of relationship that God has experienced from eternity, other-centered, total love, frankly, that's the kind of love that we all wish we could have and give. We all wish we could experience that and be able to give that to one another. And, if, and what the Bible is saying then, right here in John 1, is that if that kind of love exists at the very center of the universe, right? Our world is not made of conflict. Our world is not made of violence. If this is true, our world is made of love. It's made of other-centered love that never runs out, that never gets selfish, never gets distracted, never has an empty tank. And the, the miracle of Christmas is this. That that love exists, and when Jesus moves into our neighborhood, when he pitches his tent here, when he puts on humanity, he brings that kind of love with him into our world. This fact stands at the heart of Christianity. If you're a Christian here this morning, you believe this. This crazy, outrageous claim. Okay? If you're here investigating Christianity, if you're curious about it, this is one of the central things you need to wrestle with. The eternal God became a mortal man. The one who is nothing like us became just like us. That's where Jesus Christ is from. Perfect unity and a relationship from before time, which sounds like a pretty amazing neighborhood to live in. Okay, Now, my family and I, we moved here to Basalt, and this is an amazing neighborhood to live in. Okay, I mean, we wake up and we can see the sun hitting the top of Sopris Mountain out of our living room window. This is beautiful, but... I'm just saying, if I move from Jesus' neighborhood, I might never want to leave, right? I mean, even compared to Basalt, like, that's a downgrade in neighborhoods. So the question is, why? Why would Jesus ever leave the comfort and the riches and the satisfying love of his home? That's the question. And John goes on to tell us exactly why. The first thing we see is that Jesus moved into our neighborhood to tell us something. John calls Jesus the word four times in this introduction. 
What does a word do? A word communicates. A word tells truth. A word shares new information, new knowledge. This is what Jesus came to do. Jesus came to give us new knowledge about God. Okay, but knowledge is a funny thing. So before being the pastor here um, at Grace Church, I was a pastor to college students at Northwestern University outside of Chicago. Now, Northwestern is a really, really good school, okay? A school I personally could not have gotten into myself. I think it's ranked 11th in the country this year. Um, that, you know, it's filled with Northwestern students, but I call them Nerdwestern students because they're just like kind of in the clouds half the time. So when we had uh, a bunch of students over for Thanksgiving one year, um, at one point the conversation turned to these things called Millennium Prizes, which are like the unsolvable math and physics problems that exist in the world that geniuses devote their whole lives to. And so they start, the kids start talking about this stuff, and I just like, you know, like totally zone out. I, eyes glaze over. I have no idea what they're talking about. Their heads are filled with so much knowledge. But there's different kinds of knowledge. And the knowledge that Jesus Christ came to give us about God isn't necessarily the same thing. It's not necessarily head knowledge, okay? Um, He didn't come here so that our heads might be filled with more knowledge about God. Jesus came so that we might know God, know him personally, know him intimately, uh, this is the, the difference between knowing my wife's Myers-Briggs personality test and knowing my wife, right? Like, I can read on a report that she's spontaneous and extroverted and more fun than me, but um, to know her, to actually know her, means I know what's going to come out of her mouth before she does, right? And I know that when she gives me that one look, that means I need to stop talking immediately, right? I know my wife in a way that I know more than just facts about her. And Jesus, the king of all kings, the God who existed from eternity past, entered this world so that you might know him in that kind of way, intimately, personally, deeply. He moved from the riches of heaven and the comforts of heaven and the safety of heaven, and he moved into our broken, sinful, frustrating neighborhood because he wants that kind of a relationship with you. Jesus came here to bring new knowledge. He came to bring a revelation about who he is, but he also came to bring salvation. Verse 11, he came to his own people, or I'm sorry, he came to his own. His own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And then in verse 16, we read, it's from his fullness that we've received grace upon grace. This is why Jesus came. Jesus came so that by grace, we might become children of God. We might be invited into that family, that family love that's existed from before time. Now, there's a lot of things in this room that make us different from one another. There's a lot of distinctions here, right? Some of us are young, some of us are old, some of us are Republicans, some of us are Democrats, some of us are skiers, some of us are boarders, some of us are like, healthy, organic foodies, and some of us just sort of live for, like, the processed packaged zebra cake that you find at the gas station. You don't have to raise your hand, but you know who you are. There are these small gaps, these small differences between everybody, and they require, they they create friction, right? And they, they require a bridge. They require that we cross a gap to understand each other. 
They can be frustrating, um, but they can also be crossed. We can work to cross our differences. But there is one difference. There's one distinction in this world that dwarfs all the other ones, that makes all the others look tiny and non-existent. The real gap that exists in our world is not a wealth gap. It's not an education gap. It's not a political gap. Those exist, but nothing like this gap. The gap between God the creator and his, his sinful creation is a gap that is so wide, all the other gaps pale in comparison, right? We have lost our access to his life and his love that stands at the center of the universe, and this gap is our fault. I mean, we ran away from this God. We've dethroned him in our life. Our sin is our rebellion, and we created a gap that is a bridge too far for us to cross. And what's silly and sort of sad is that we spend a ton of our time comparing ourselves to one another, right? We have, like, the distinctions between us we use as little virtue signals. Like, you know, I do this thing a little bit better than you, and that sort of puts me in a position of, I don't know, like I'm doing life better. Um, what, we're do- what we're doing, it's like we're competing to see who can jump the highest, and some of us are proud that we can touch the net, and others of us are proud we can touch the rim, and the truly elite among us can just elevate and just, you know, dunk with force, and, like, they're the impressive ones. But the real gap between us and God is like jumping to the moon. I mean, it, it creates the differences in inches between the rest of us just don't matter anymore when we start to consider how far we're removed from our holy God who lives in heaven. No virtue, no ingenuity, no resume, no moral achievement can even begin to gather the resources to cross that gap until Christmas, until Jesus Christ crossed the gap the other direction, and he moved from heaven and came to earth, and he built a bridge that we could not to reconnect us to the family love of God. And the small differences just don't matter anymore because we have access into the family love of God. For from his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. J.I. Packer wrote a book called Knowing God, and in it he wrote this. We see now what it meant for the Son of God to empty himself and become poor. It meant a laying aside of glory, a voluntary restraint of his power, an acceptance of hardship, isolation, ill treatment, malice, misunderstanding, and finally death. The The Christmas message is that there is hope for a ruined humanity, hope for pardon, hope for peace, hope for glory. Because of the Father's will, Jesus Christ became poor and was born in a stable so that 30 years later he might hang on a cross. It is the most wonderful message the world has ever heard or ever will hear. Jesus left his home and moved into ours so that when he went back home, he might bring us with him. That's the miracle of Christmas. C.S. Lewis calls this the grand miracle. Okay? All the other miracles, all the other news of Christianity only matter if this miracle is true. He wrote, the central miracle asserted by Christians is the incarnation. If this thing happened, it was the central event in the history of the earth, the very thing that the whole story has been about, the very thing that your whole life is about, if it's true. It's outrageous, but if it's true, this is what all of our lives are about. Um, let me try to wrap this up with um, an illustration. 
Uh, Dorothy Sayers was one of the first women to graduate from Oxford. And when she did, she finished with first-class honors in English. Okay? And one of the things she went on to be famous for was writing a series of detective novels about a character named Lord Peter Whimsey. All right? Now, throughout these novels, you know, he solves all these mysteries, but his character grows lonely and sad. And so at one point in the series, uh, a, a new character named Harriet Vane arrives on the scene. Okay? And uh, this character in the stories gets to know Lord Peter Whimsey. They work on a few mysteries together. They fall in love. They get married. And they have kids. In other words, she uh, becomes what he needs for a full life throughout these narratives. All right? But here's the thing. In these novels, Harriet Vane is the first woman who has graduated from Oxford. And as she did, her character got first-class honors in English. And her character even wrote uh, mystery novels on the side. Okay? What's going on here? What's, what's going on here? Dorothy Sayers first created Lord Peter Whimsey, and then she fell in love with his character, okay? So much so that when he grew sad, and he grew lonely, and his life started to sort of pull apart, she wrote herself into the story to save him, and to make him whole, and to make him full, and to heal everything that was broken about him. Jesus Christ didn't just write us information about himself, he wrote himself into our story to save us and to make us whole and to make us complete. He did this at great cost to himself and a great benefit to us. He moved here to solve our greatest problem and to welcome us into his family forever. My hope and my prayer for me, myself, my family, and for this church and for many people up and down this valley and around the world today, is that the grace of Jesus and the great love that he offers us would captivate more of our hearts and more of our imagination and more of our lives. That, that this event, this outrageous claim that God became man, wouldn't just be the central event in history, but it would actually be the central event and the central heart of our entire lives. That's my prayer for us this morning on Christmas Eve. Let's pray that together right now. Heavenly Father, your story is amazing. You wrote it, you created us, and then you loved us so much that at great cost to yourself, you came here to live and to die and to rise again, that we might be reunited with your love. I pray that that story is our story. I pray that if we don't believe that, that it would be... Um, it would be captivating today. It would be fascinating. It would excite our hearts, and we would come to believe it. And I pray that if we already do, you would help us believe it more and more, that it would influence and impact more of our lives. Jesus, you are so good to us, and you've given us so many good gifts. We ask these things in your name. Amen.